Hello, everybody. Welcome and welcome back to this episode of When I Knew. I'm going to try to record this again because I did record this in my defense. I recorded this episode last night and then I saved it and it didn't save. So that was lovely. If you hear a little bit of cooing in the background, that's because I'm holding my little one in my arms as I record and hoping that the story of her birth will put her to sleep because right now she is cluster feeding and she is fighting sleep. I swear I have have like a toddler in my arms, even though technically she is still a newborn. So my name is Samantha. For those of you who don't know me, I hope that you guys are doing well. For those of you who celebrate, I hope you had a wonderful and a safe 4th of July celebration. And I hope you guys are having a great summer. I I sort of, I, I keep forgetting that it's summer because the little one can only go outside for like a few minutes at a time. So we have been in full like newborn mode and just inside all the time. But today, I'm going to be telling you the story of my labor and delivery. Uh, As it says in the description, it was colorful. (laughs) Basically, everything that, uh, that we needed to happen did not happen. And the only thing that we accomplished that was on my to-do list was that all three of us were able to leave the hospital together in good health within a reasonable amount of time. So the story does have a very happy ending, but oh my god, this is... (sighs) Make yourself a cup of tea, make some coffee, get yourself a drink, and have a seat because we're about to go on a roller coaster. So my due date comes, and then, surprise, surprise, my due date goes. And nothing was happening. For those of you who have had a baby before, you know that at that point in your pregnancy, you're going to the OBGYN probably about every two to three days, give or take, uh, because they want to see if you're dilating and they want to do an examination of you and your vital signs in your body, as well as listen to the baby, make sure the heartbeat is good, make sure that they're moving around, having a great time. So the good news is that my vitals were great and my daughter's vitals were great. But for whatever reason, every time I went in for an examination, I was not dilating at all. Now, what I learned from one of my doctors was that dilation doesn't necessarily mean anything. He told me that he's had women that come in at 30 weeks and you give birth at 40 weeks. um, And they're like four centimeters dilated and they're four centimeters dilated until finally they give birth a few weeks later. So being dilated is always a nice thing, but it's not necessarily an indicator one way or another of when you will actually go into labor. I didn't know that. So my due date comes, my due date goes. And at that point, we're like, oh, dokie time to schedule my induction so we do just that but of course before I can actually be induced I needed to have my cervix ripened now what does that mean basically we needed to get my cervix to soften so a face uh, which means that it needs to be really squishy like a ripe peach then uh, so baby can pass through then we need to get me to dilate uh, and in order to start pushing you need to be about nine or ten centimeters dilated to start pushing so the baby can come out. And then there was one other goal with the um, with the cervical ripening that I can't remember at the moment. It escapes me. But basically, I needed chemical help to get my body ready to give birth in any form or fashion. Now, spoiler alert, I will be doing an episode with Kevin and Mike because I want to understand what I don't want to say what went wrong, but why this didn't work from a chemical standpoint. Like, Why did my body say, "Mm, no, that's okay. So my husband and I get to the hospital on a Thursday evening, and I kid you not, 
there were six women that were in active labor. And I think there were only two doctors available that evening. So I think they were calling in extra doctors. And so even though we would have loved to start the process that evening, it just didn't happen. So we decided to settle in and we played poker. We brought a deck of cards with us. We also brought Uno cards with us. I mean, we we knew that we were going to be there for a little bit and we were going to need to entertain ourselves. Luckily, my husband and I actually like each other and we get along really well. So, you know, deck of cards, Uno cards, uh, some coins to play poker with, all that good stuff. We ordered something to eat and we had a really, really nice evening. Fell asleep, woke up the next morning, and I met with one of the doctors that I've been seeing this entire time, and she explained that she was going to give me something called Cervidel. So Cervidel is the only FDA-approved drug right now to help a woman ripen her cervix, and it looks just like a tampon and basically functions like a tampon, so it's inserted into the vagina and sits just outside the opening of the cervix, and it encourages labor to begin. So the wonderful thing about Cervidel is that, again, it's like a tampon. So it has a string that stays on the outside of your body. And it's one of those drugs where the minute it's taken out, it stops working. Within about 15 minutes, it'll it'll stop doing whatever it's trying to do. And that can be really helpful because for a lot of women, this will really help them along. Now, there are other options. You can have a small balloon inserted into your cervix and then inflated. You can have... Um, a, uh, you, you can take something called mitoprexol, which I did end up taking. I'll get to that part of the story. But they wanted to start with the Cervidil. So at about 1130 in the morning, the doctor puts this in. And for about three hours, I didn't really feel much of anything. I, at that point, had been having contractions on my own. I had been having contractions for weeks. So when one came around, I didn't really feel it. All of a sudden, about four hours in, I started to feel some really strong contractions. And they were lasting. At first, they were about three minutes apiece. And then, oh boy, they were four to five minutes apiece. And they were strong. So by about seven o'clock that night, the pain, I'm not going to lie, it was pretty unbearable. It just, it, it, it really had gotten a lot worse. And about two hours beforehand at about five o'clock, a different doctor had come in. And this is important. She pushed the Cervidel deeper and further inside of me. And for whatever reason, she put the string inside of me. So cut to about seven o'clock at night. I'm now in excruciating pain. I'm arching my back. I'm, I'm whimpering. I'm starting to cry. I can no longer breathe through the contractions. It's just getting to a point where it's really, really bad. So we, the, uh, my nurse came in and said, okay, so you haven't made any progress yet. You are still only one centimeter dilated. Let me, you can take something called, um, Oh boy, what's it called? Stadol. She goes, I can give you something called Stadol, just a teeny tiny little dose. It'll last about an hour and it'll go through your IV. However, it will make you loopy and it will probably make you tired, but it'll take the edge off the pain. Like you will still feel when you're having a contraction, but it'll take the pain away. And at first I was really hesitant because I don't really like drugs, but I'm like, okay, fine. So she gives me the state all, and I don't know why, but I basically started to lightly hallucinate, and I thought that I was in the Shrek movie. I don't even really like Shrek, 
So I don't know where that came from, but I, I kept asking my husband, I'm like, do you see Shrek? I have to go to his house. I have to go to the swamp. Even though he doesn't want anyone in his swamp, I have to go to the swamp. And my husband's like, okay. So of course, about an hour later, the state all wears off and I'm once again in excruciating pain. So at this point, I'm wondering, can I get an epidural? Is there something else that I can get? However, luck, once again, was not on my side because another handful of women were already either in the hospital or coming in in active labor. So the doctor was otherwise occupied. Finally, at about, I guess it was about 10.30. So this had to stay in until 11.30 p.m. The cervidil stays in for 12 hours. So it's about 11.30 or 10.30 now. And I can't even function. The doctor walks in, doesn't even make it through the door. And I just looked at her and I was like, get me something. And she goes, I'm ordering the epidural now. So the anesthesiologist comes right up. He could not have been any nicer. He explained everything that he was doing while he was doing it. And he was also really flexible with me because one of the drugs that they need to administer during an epidural is epinephrine, which is the same thing that's in EpiPens for anaphylactic reactions, as well as, you know, if you're under cardiac arrest, so on and so on. I do not react well to epinephrine. And so I told him that. So he goes, all right, not a problem. I do need to use it, but I can use the tiny, tiniest bit. And we'll just, we'll, we'll be tracking your vitals. Like, you know, we'll, we'll keep track of everything. I said, okay. So I sat on the edge of my bed. My nurse stood in front of me with both of her hands on my shoulder and she tapped my shoulders, like rhythmically tapped my shoulders so that that's what I focused on. And James was standing right behind her, my husband. And um, I just focused on that. I held perfectly still. The epidural went in. They laid me down on the bed and they did the little test dose. Now, this was the only time things got dicey for a minute this evening. Um, my blood pressure did drop, which is very common when you're getting an epidural and the baby's blood pressure dropped as well. However, both of us were able to self-correct within a matter of minutes and everything was fine. So at this point, when you have an epidural, I was useless from about the chest down. So they had a blood pressure cuff on me at all times. They had the um, little blood ox monitor on my finger or my toe at all times. And every 15 minutes, they were taking my vital signs. So... The doctor comes in, does another examination, and unfortunately, after all that, I wasn't dilated at all. If you put my legs back, technically I was two centimeters dilated, but really I was only one. And at this point, I'm feeling pretty discouraged. I'm thinking, damn, you know, I just spent all day trying to ripen my cervix and then go into labor, and this, it's just not happening for me. So that night, I had a wonderful nurse named Gina who came in every hour on the hour. They took the Cervidil out of me, which was a horrifying experience because, like I said, the doctor had put the string inside of me as well, so the nurse had to really look for it, so to speak, and it was extremely painful. But they started me on a drug that I think is called Mitoprexol, which is water-soluble, and I took it, I think, every hour or every two hours to, again, try to ripen my cervix. 
at that point, I was also catheterized. So every hour, my nurse came in. She emptied my catheter bag. She turned me over. She adjusted my pillows. I mean, Gina was incredible. She gave me my medicine. She took my vitals. She took my temperature. Um, and they just, they kept an eye on me and they kept an eye on the baby all night. And despite the fact that I was useless from the chest down, my vitals held steady and so did the baby's. Now, cut to the next day and we are still just waiting. I'm having contractions. They're really powerful, but luckily because I have the epidural, I can't really feel them. I could feel a little bit of pressure, but I couldn't feel the, uh, the pain. Now, on top of that, my legs and my feet started to swell because I had been hooked up to an IV for so long at that point. So James was massaging my feet. He was doing bicycle kicks with my legs, just anything we could to kind of keep me moving a little bit because I couldn't move. I couldn't ambulate. So the entire day goes by. They're still doing examinations. I'm just not making any progress. And at this point, you know, I had an emotional moment the night before and I started to get emotional towards the end of the day. And I looked at my husband and I said that I, I, I just said, I feel so bad. I'm just not good at this. I, like my body is just not interested and, you know, nothing is talking to one another. The placenta isn't giving off the signal that it's ready. And, you know, the baby's just kind of sitting there. And I just, you know, this is starting to get, you know, a little, a little old. I was feeling discouraged. So at this point I had another nurse and she's a Gemini and she was awesome. She comes in and she goes, all right, it's about 6.30 at night. And mind you, when you're on, when you have an epidural, you can't eat. And I don't think you can drink either. Now, I'm hypoglycemic, so I need to keep my blood sugar up. So at this point, I'm thinking to myself, if I have to push, I feel so tired and so weak at this point. I don't know how I'm going to push this baby out. I just don't know how. So my nurse comes in and she goes, all right, so here's where we're at right now. The Cervidil didn't work. The Mitoprexol, not working. You have not made any progress, so we have two choices. We can either stop the epidural and wait a couple hours for you to regain sensation in your legs. You can take a shower, you can eat a nice dinner, eat whatever you want, and we can start this entire process over again tomorrow. Or we can turn off the epidural and, um, or no, keep the, I guess we kept the epidural in, but then turned it off later. Anyways, she goes, we can turn off the epidural and um, you can have a C-section now first thing tomorrow morning. Now, I feel from the conversations that you and I have been having throughout the day that you're leaning more towards a C-section rather than a vaginal delivery. Could you please talk me through what brought you to that decision? And I really appreciate the way that she phrased that question because in most situations, any doctor, any doula, any birth center will encourage you to have a vaginal delivery because it's just, it's a more natural way to give birth. It's less stress on you. It's less stress on the baby. There's a shorter recovery time. It helps the baby and their microbiome. And it also gives them a nice squeeze to get all the amniotic fluid and, mus and, and mucus out of their nose, out of their sinus cavities, out of their stomach and everything, uh, out of their ears, you know, just all that good stuff. Um, but I, I said, look, 
I appreciate that I have options, and thank you for posing the question that way. The reason that I want to have a C-section at this point is, one, I feel extremely weak. Even if you guys let me have a full dinner tonight, I just don't see how I could go through another 12 hours of not eating and then starting to push. That's number one. Number two, my body is not reacting to these drugs. It doesn't give a flying shit, excuse my language, that that you're trying to ripen my cervix. My body is literally telling you guys to hit the road and it's not responding at all. Now, the other reason I don't want to do a vaginal delivery is because everything up until this point has indicated to me that I'm not meant to have a vaginal delivery. If by some miracle you guys can get me to dilate, I'm afraid that something will go wrong during vaginal delivery, at which point I will need to be whisked down the hall, lickety split, hold on, I got to put my baby in her bassinet. I'm going to, I'm going to keep talking while I'm doing this. Um, I will be whisked down the hall. And then because I have so many different drug allergies, as well as food allergies, we will more or less rush through the C-section. Something will, at no fault of your own, either be rushed or overlooked. And we could find ourselves in a critical situation when we don't need to be in one. And she goes, okay, I totally understand. She goes, look, if something does go wrong, and I've been here for five years and I've only seen four true emergencies, if something does go wrong, we have the most incredible crash trauma team here and they come right in, they do what they need to do. And every single one of those moms that was in a critical situation walked out of here a day later. So we do know what we're doing. So you're in very good hands, but I understand your decision. Now, I need to make sure that I'm giving you all the information that you need to finalize your decision because we will need you to sign something. Um, With a C-section, it is a major surgery. It is a routine surgery that we perform all the time, but it is a major surgery. You will only be able to climb one flight of stairs a day So you will be on bed rest. You will need a lot of extra help. And so she's looking at James at this point. She goes, Dad, you're going to need to do basically everything for her and everything for the baby. So talk to me about, like, your house. Is it two stories? Did you guys have a chance to go shopping ahead of time? Now, luckily, because James and I, I especially, am very overprepared, I had everything that we needed. I got duplicates, basically, of everything, um, and I had them both in the master bedroom as well as downstairs. So no matter what floor I was on, I would have what I needed to make a bottle, sterilize a bottle, do the dishes, get her dressed, change her diapers, dispose of everything. Like I had literally everything. So that was the good news. And she goes, all right, now there is a chance that a C-section will not only impact um, like future labor and delivery, but also future pregnancies. There are some complications. One of them being your internal organs, because everything is very close, may end up healing, but they may fuse together. The most common thing to happen is when your bladder will accidentally heal up against your uterus, which will then require additional surgery for your bladder. If you have a C-section now, you will likely have to have a C-section in the future, and we usually do not recommend getting more than two C-sections. So you guys need to think about how many kids you want. I realize this is loaded. This is a big decision to make, but like you need to think about how many kids you want, um, you know, biologically by, by you, because this could have an impact. If there is any part of you that is thinking of delivering vaginally, do it. 
because it is the best way to give birth. But, you know, I, I respect your decision either way. Now, you guys are going to have a half an hour before the doctor comes in here. Call your family, call your support people, make sure that you've got a community around you that can bring over some prepared meals and help out, you know, with shopping or picking things up or whatever it may be because you guys are going to need a lot of support and also talk about, you know, the future of your family. So she walks out of the room and I immediately started crying and I, I love my husband more than words or gestures or any interpretive dance could ever, ever imply or explain or express. And I want nothing more than to have a big family with him. But even if the pregnancy had not gone the way that it did, and you guys know my pregnancy was really hard, um, the labor and delivery or just being in labor showed me that in this instance and likely in the future, and this is why I want to talk to my doctors and talk to Mike and Kevin, um, giving birth is just not something that my body is interested in. It doesn't come naturally to me. It wasn't a pleasant experience. And I just, I didn't feel like less of a woman. I don't want to go to that extreme, but I was disappointed. Um, Disappointed really more so just in, in myself. I didn't have any expectations or any like, oh, I have to give birth this way. I didn't have a birth plan is what I'm trying to say. But I, I had always hoped that my body would, would sort of be there for me during this process. Um, and it wasn't. Now, why did I feel that way? So let's dig into that a little bit. You guys know that I'm adopted. And in the weeks and days leading up to having my baby, I started to feel a really strong connection to my biological mother. And I started to think about her a lot and wonder what her experience was like for labor and delivery. And without realizing it, I think this entire experience became symbolic of a full circle moment for me. I thought, you know, I, I can't imagine giving birth to a child and then surrendering that child. And that's what my biological mom had to do with me. But that's not what I'm doing. This is my chance to to experience motherhood. This is my chance to um, to heal the wound that she probably has from giving me up. And this is my chance to hold on to my baby, to hold on to my daughter and and just heal that for myself and maybe through the universe, through whatever uh, heal it for her as well. And I, it just, um, now sitting here and I'm looking at my daughter and I'm healthy, she's healthy. I'm having that moment, but in, in the moment in the hospital, I wasn't. And, um, I was really grieving the loss of having that, that experience of, of giving birth vaginally and, and, you know, reaching down and, and seeing my baby and feeling her on my chest. And yeah, I didn't get to have that. So about 10 minutes later, the doctor comes in, tells us all the risks involved, walks us through everything, but does not shame me for my decision at all. Just wanted to make sure I really understood that there were some serious complications that could arise, uh, before, during, and after. And I, I took the chance. So we go to bed 
we wake up the next morning. Our favorite nurse comes in. She goes, listen, I'm going to be by your side all day today. I'm going to be keeping an eye on you, keeping an eye on the surgery. I have your back 100%. I'm not going anywhere. And I just, I loved her. My nurse's name was Doris, and I just loved Doris. So then the anesthesiologist comes in, really nice, young black guy. Oh, my God, he was so sharp. And he he was joking with me. He goes, so I see that you're allergic to everything. Can you walk me through every single one of your allergies and what happens when you come across one of these allergens? I said, absolutely. So I'm going through the whole list with him. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, what kind of medicine do you practice? And I said, oh, what medicine do I take? Well, I take Mucinex. <laughs> Because I do, I take Mucinex almost every day. And and he goes, no, 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 no. Like, are you, are you a nurse? Are you a doctor? Like, wh- what are you? I said, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't work in the medical field, but my mother was a medical assistant for 40 years. And she always taught me, you don't mess with the doctors and the nurses. You got to call everything what it is and you have to tell them everything because if you don't tell them, they can't help you. He goes, oh my God, the way that you talk, like you you sound like a nurse. You sound like a doctor. I said, well, thank you. And it was funny because he wasn't the first person to say that. A lot of the nurses were like, are you a nurse too? (laughs) Are you a medical assistant? Are you a PA? What are you? And I'm like, I have a media production company and I make fairy houses. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. So then the uh there was a resident in anesthesiologist another young black guy comes in and he goes girl i was looking at your chart you are allergic to everything so i went through everything with him as well because it's it's important again especially with the anesthesiologist it's important for them to know because they're putting stuff in your body you know what you're allergic to and how you react to things and um so after he left my doctor came in and i said oh i just you know i really wanted you to do the c-section on a sunday and she goes this is the one day a week I usually don't do surgery but I will make an exception for you now I will make an exception for you if you make an exception for me do you mind if I examine you just one more time I want to make sure that you're not like five centimeters dilated I said look even if I am we're doing the c-section but yes if you want to give me an examination that's totally fine so she did and sure enough one centimeter dilated my body was just like not interested so next thing we know I'm getting wheeled down the hall And uh, they separate me from my husband so he can go and scrub in and do all that. And they put me in the OR. They talked me through absolutely everything. And here's where things got a little bit interesting. And by a little bit, I mean a lot of it. So we go, oh, you know what? My daughter is sleeping. Let me just mark this down. Hold on. (laughs) I need to mark down that she's sleeping in the little app. We keep track of her her sleep. like schedule so that we can understand you know how much rest she's getting and so on and so forth right now we're in the middle of cluster feeding so that is always just you know a lovely time uh but all right so let's see she fell asleep at about here okay great so they start administering, and by they, I mean the anesthesiologist. They start giving me all this numbing stuff, and uh, my husband comes in and sits next to me, and he's, you know, hand on my arm. You're doing a great job. He's ready to go. So then uh, the doctor goes, all right, I'm going to start uh, doing some angel cuts, and I just need you to tell me uh, if you can feel anything. So sure enough, there were two areas of my lower abdomen where I could feel. And the anesthesiologists, as well as the doctors and nurses, were all stumped. Because at that point, I should have been 150,000% numb, and for whatever reason, I wasn't. They also kept checking with me. They're like, okay, is it a pain or a pressure? I said, it is, it is a sharp 
pain. Like I can feel that it is a blade and it does not feel like someone's fingertip just poking me. They're like, what the hell? That should have been our first indicator that God was in a funny mood when he made me some 33 years ago, because then they start, they, they gave me lidocaine to give me some numbing uh, sensation just locally. And they start making the cuts. James is there talking to me. You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. He's keeping a track of my vitals. My nurse, Doris, is, is right there next to me. She's looking at the doctor. She's looking at me. And she goes, I don't know why you keep looking at me. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I don't have anywhere else I'm supposed to be. I'm like, all right, all right. Then all of a sudden, about four minutes into the surgery, it comes time to cut my uterus. And this is where things started to go very wrong. Don't ask me why. I still do not know. But when they cut into my uterus, I could feel it. And I yelled, ow. Immediately, the doctor stopped cutting. The anesthesiologist said, talk to me. What's going on? I said, I feel a sharp pain in my urethra. And, and the doctor goes, your urethra? I said, yes, and I realize you're cutting into my uterus, so I don't know why a completely different organ, you know, inches away, is radiating pain in my urethra, but it is. And she goes, okay, can you feel that? I said, ow, ow, ow. So at that point, the anesthesiologist takes the nitrous oxide mask and presses it down on my face. He's got his hand on his other side, on the other side of my cheek, and he's stroking me. He's like, "All right, I need you to breathe. I got your back. We got you. We're gonna get you through this. It's it. Don't don't worry." And the other anesthesiologist, the MD, was like, "How the hell is that?" possible. He's looking over the curtain. The other anesthesiologist is looking over the curtain. James is looking at me. No one could figure out why. One, why I could feel this. And two, why it was radiating in my urethra. That's where your pee comes out. Like it it just doesn't make any sense at all. So next thing I know, I black out. And then I wake up about 10 minutes later and James is holding our daughter and he's going, eight pounds, nine ounces, eight pounds, nine ounces. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I couldn't, I mean, I could believe it because yes, I was the one that was pregnant with her. I know, I mean, my hips remember all too well and so does my lower back and everything else. She was a big, big wiggly baby. She was also 21 and a half inches long. Now, I'm not even five feet tall. I don't have a torso. I mean, this this child was so squished in there <laughs> that it, it, it was just, it was time for her to come out. So I'm trying to process everything. Baby's crying. I'm like half conscious. James comes over and puts her little cheek right up against mine. And I'll tell you guys, you know, I was a little bit worried because I had a difficult pregnancy and a difficult labor and delivery. I was really worried that I would be one of those women that wouldn't bond with their baby right away. It's really common, especially if you just have a rough time to sort of feel resentful of your child and you just don't feel connected to them and you don't feel bonded with them. And that's really normal for a lot of moms. But fortunately for me and the experience that I wanted to have, the minute I saw her, And the minute her little cheek was up against mine, I just knew. I knew that there was not one single thing I wouldn't do for this child. And it was like I had known her my entire life. It was as if we were destined to, to be mother and daughter. We were destined to live our lives learning from one another. It it was just, it was, I, I can't explain it. It was just, that was when I knew 
name of the show. That was when I knew this was my daughter and this was my destiny. This was our destiny. So they get me into the recovery bed. They wheel me down the hall. They play the little lullaby music, uh, which plays throughout the whole hospital. So everyone knows when a new baby has been born. And um, because they had to knock me out, they gave me morphine as well as some other stuff. I was absolutely useless all day. So James took care of her by himself with, with Doris, with our nurse. And he was exceptional. He fed her. He rocked her. He changed her. I mean, he did everything. He did not let go of that baby for one second unless he was going to the bathroom. He held our daughter all day. And I'm really glad, and so is he, that he got that alone time with her because normally, you know, the dad, I've heard from a lot of dads that they kind of feel a little bit left out, you know, until the baby's about six to eight months when they're sitting up and they're eating solid foods and they're awake for a little bit longer. Dads can sort of feel a little bit left out and a little bit obsolete uh, in the newborn days, but that is not the experience that James is having and that's not the one that he wanted to have. I mean, this man wakes up for every feeding, every diaper change, every everything. He is right there, ready to go because that's the kind of father that he wants to be. That's the experience he wants to have and that's the bond that he wants to have with his daughter and I think it's wonderful. So about, I don't know, about 4.30 rolls around and uh, I'm, I'm working with a different nurse now and I'm like, oh my God, I am so nauseous. I'm out of it. I'm dizzy. I feel like crap. She goes, listen, let me give you something, okay? Through your IV, it's nothing like the state all. I know you didn't like being in the Shrek movie, but let me give you something for the nausea. And I said, all right, fine. So they give me something, knocks me out for a couple of hours. I wake up and I'm a, a brand new woman. So the nurse helps me get up and... Uh, when you have a C-section, what they want you to do is swing your legs over on the side of the bed and they want you to just go for it and just stand up straight. They don't want you to, to take your time. No, they want you to just stand right up when you're ready to stand because that will help with the healing. And sure enough, it did. So I was able to go off to the bathroom, brush my teeth, you know, wipe my face. Um, I did do skin to skin with the baby uh, pretty immediately after she was born to help regulate her temperature, which worked really nicely. But other than that, I was down for the count. But uh, after that medication, I felt much better and I was able to eat and it was just wonderful. So by some miracle, my vital signs and her vital signs held steady. At one point when I blacked out, James thought I had died and he panicked, but then he looked over at the monitor and saw that I was fine. And the anesthesiologist was like, yep, I just, I put her under, but she's totally fine. Like she's not going to remember this, but like, she's completely fine. Her pulse is great. Blood ox is great. Her BP, like everything's great. So he's like, okay, phew. So a few days later, we were able to go home. And, um, that, that's my labor and delivery story. It did not go the way I thought that it would, but I'm so grateful that it just went this way because it meant that all of us could leave at once. And, uh, since coming home, every single thing that I bought, I have used. Uh, we only had a newborn for about a week before she completely outgrew all of her newborn clothes, all of her newborn diapers. And she's now only a few weeks old, but she's wearing three to six month clothing. She's just, she's a big baby. She um, initially was doing really well. Then she ended up losing a couple ounces. So her pediatrician recommended that we uh, up her, her milliliters. And so we basically doubled what we were feeding her. And now she's going through cluster feeding. So that means that she eats every four seconds. Um, she's doing really well. I'm doing really well. 
uh, James and I talked extensively beforehand regarding the difference between baby blues, postpartum depression, and postpartum psychosis. So he understood the difference. He knew all the warning signs. I'm not going to lie. Days four and five were a little bit dicey for me postpartum. That was when my, um, my hormones just kind of plummeted and I was very weepy. And for the first week that we were home, anytime I looked at the baby, I just started crying joyfully, but I would just start crying because I was just so grateful and so in awe of this, this little person that was now in our lives and in our home and we were responsible for her. And it was just the most beautiful, but the most overwhelming and scary feeling. And um, I think, uh, so now I'm a few weeks postpartum and aside from those dicey couple of days, I feel really great. So I was concerned about postpartum depression and, you know, you might be wondering why, and I don't have a history of depression, but, um, because women are finally talking about it, it, it feels like it's very common because it is, but it also, to me, it felt like it was sort of to be expected. And, I think what really helped me push through those moments where I, I probably could have teetered over onto um, the spectrum of postpartum was I just, I blurted things out. Any fear, any anxiety, any thought I was having, however preposterous or otherwise, um, it just, I, I, I told my husband. And talking it through, and I called my friend Christine, and I called Paige, and I called Abby, and just talking through those feelings I was having right then and there, right in the moment as they were happening, helped tremendously. Now, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying that that would work for every woman, but I always encourage people to talk about how they're feeling. And not only did I practice that, but James practiced it as well. Anytime he was feeling really overwhelmed or he was feeling afraid or he was feeling emotional and overwhelmed and grateful and just totally like in love with this baby, we just expressed it right then and there in the moment, 100% honest, and, um, and it made a really big difference for us. So now here we are and our little one is doing really well. We are doing very well. James's parents are going to be spending a few weeks with us and we are so looking forward to that. And we're just grateful. As far as the future of our family is concerned, I think being pregnant during a global pandemic was kind of enough for me. So we're probably going to hold off before we start exploring ways to expand our family. And we're really looking forward to just spending this time getting to know our first child, getting to know our daughter, and seeing the world through her eyes and and nurturing her curiosities and being there for her 100%, um, just totally unconditional, just being her parents. So so that is my story. Uh, and in the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking to Shayna, who is a safe sleep advocate and uh, has a nonprofit organization of her own. And she gets involved at a government level to make sure that we're holding companies that manufacture products for children and families, that we're holding them accountable, that we're uh, supporting the different organizations that are constantly doing the research to keep infants and children safe. And um, yeah. So 
We're going to be talking to her. I'm looking forward to you guys hearing that episode. I just have to get it edited and put it up when I have a free moment. And then I'm also going to be following up with Kevin and Michael regarding what happened during my labor and delivery. And we're also going to be talking more about early childhood development, standardized testing. So the series will continue on. I want to thank you all so much for sending me your well wishes, as well as respecting our privacy and our wishes for our daughter. None of you have pressured me to get back on social media. And um, I really, really, uh, my family and I both, we just appreciate that so much. And we appreciate you following along on this journey. So you can learn about this show and more at our website, which is WISP.us. As always, from Whatever You Say Productions, my name is Samantha. Thank you guys for absolutely everything. Take very good care of yourselves. We look forward to catching up with you next time. Bye-bye.